0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Trump administration wants to withhold grant money from cities and counties that don't help enforce immigration laws. But the sheriff in one conservative Colorado county says cooperating with immigration authorities isn't as simple as the president makes it seem. Weld County recently found itself on a surprise list of places that the Trump administration says didn't follow orders to help immigration officials. Sheriff Steve Reams joins me from his office in Greeley. Sheriff, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me on.
0: Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke earlier this week about the list that included Weld County.
2: The Department of Homeland Security recently issued a report showing that in a single week, uh, there were more than 200 instances of jurisdictions refusing to honor ICE detainer requests with respect to individuals charged or convicted of a serious crime. These, the charges and convictions against these aliens include drug trafficking, hit and run, rape, sex offenses against a child, and even murder. Such policies cannot continue. They make our nation less safe by putting dangerous criminals back on the streets. Now, ICE's Immigration and Customs
0: Enforcement, those are federal authorities. And what the attorney general described sounds like a really serious situation. What was the situation that landed Weld County on that list?
1: Well, the situation with Weld County involved um, a suspected illegal immigrant that was actually arrested on two separate occasions, Uh, although in the report that ICE issued, it was uh, listed as one continuous arrest. Um, But essentially, the person was picked up um, for the first arrest for violating a protection order and uh, was booked in on December 6th and given a personal recognizance bond by a um, a judicial officer, a judge on December seventh and was released on that personal recognizance bond
0: so that means they can kind of leave and then come back on their own on their own essentially.
1: yes basically they're it's their word they're going to come back to court uh, in that particular instance uh, we received no uh, no formal documentation from ICE requesting a hold. The form they use is an I 247 uh, We did receive a teletype uh, through. The uh, computer systems we use at the sheriff's office indicating that this person was a person of interest for ICE, but in no way was that to be expressed as a detainer for, uh, fr- from their organization. Uh, that same individual was again rearrested on February 2nd of the following year, or 2017, and um, at that time he was charged with driving under restraint and a concealed weapons uh, violation um, by deputies with my own agency. He was booked into the Weld County Jail, and on February 3rd, uh, again, he appeared before a judge and was uh, authorized a $1,000 bond, which he posted in the evening of February 3rd. In that particular incident, we did receive an I-247 form requesting that we maintain custody of this particular individual, uh, even if he were to be released on bond, um, the problem with that form is it's a request for voluntary detainer, and it has no uh, standing in the law because it's not reviewed by a judicial through any kind of judicial process or through any any um, review of the federal courts.
0: So essentially, ICE asks you to hold people after they're scheduled to be released for up to two days, isn't that right? That's correct. Now, being in the country illegally is a civil offense; it's not criminal. So, do you think it's constitutional for Weld County to do as the feds asks and and hold someone who has no criminal charges
1: pending? So that's the that's the burden at this point. Is um, you're dealing with administrative law, and there was a ruling in Clackamas County, Oregon, by the federal courts that essentially ruled that very thing is that. uh, a local sheriff is is liable in the event that they honor one of these voluntary requests to detain a person. Uh, they're liable uh, of a violation of that person's constitutional rights. You know, at, at the point that we're holding that person, they have. There's been no probable cause review to show that they are actually in the country illegally. They're just merely suspected at that time. Um, normally, the burden of proof in a in any kind of Uh, legal matter is that probable cause be established and should be reviewed uh, within a reasonable time frame by a judicial officer. If ICE were were asking for us to hold that person so that they could then take them in front of a a court or a judicial officer to perform that judicial review, then that, that detainee or that detainer might actually be lawful. But Um, the mechanism for doing that right now doesn't even come close to existing uh, in the federal system.
0: And it looks like the County Sheriff's Association in Colorado agrees with you. It maintains uh, this violates the Fourth Amendment to hold someone after a judge orders them released. And there have been cases in Arapahoe County, among other places in Colorado, where local jurisdictions have been sued by people who were held past the release date. And, And those cases have led to settlements of tens of thousands of dollars. I understand you're now trying to get Weld County removed from this list. Why is that important?
1: Well, I'm not trying to get Weld County removed as a part of the County Sheriffs of Colorado. The stance that the County Sheriffs of Colorado have taken yeah. is a legitimate stance. I, I, I apologize from the,
0: the, ICE, the, the list that the attorney general released. I, I
1: apologize. Right. So there's two actual references to my agency in that there's a specific reference uh, in regard to the inmate that was, uh, that was labeled from that December 6th arrest and the February 2nd arrest, I'm trying to have my agency removed because in that particular instance, we did cooperate with ICE. We did notify ICE of this person's, um, of this person's arrest and uh, detainment in my facility, just like we do with every arrest that comes into my facility, just like every county sheriff in Colorado does uh, when they fingerprint an inmate for a specific charge those fingerprints are transmitted to the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, which then turns uh, and provides a list to ICE of suspected uh, illegal immigrants based on foreign-born status. The reason I want my, my agency removed from that list is not necessarily personal for Weld County, but it's to send a message that The way that data is being interpreted by the federal government is wrong. We are as cooperative as we can be within the confines of the Constitution. And I think it's only fair to represent the situation as it actually occurs. I I understand what the Trump administration is trying to do, and I understand the message that that Jeff Sessions Sessions is sending by trying to figure out how to enforce uh, federal immigration policy. But you can't do that at the sake of the Constitution and asking sheriffs to violate their oath.
0: You've tried to be very clear that you don't see Weld County as a, quote, sanctuary for immigrants in the country illegally. Uh, Some conservatives have accused your county of being that recently. So what do you do to try and help federal immigration authorities?
1: I've actually been working through uh, Congressman Buck's office and trying to make contact with the officials uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, that oversee ICE to explain this problem very specifically. I've also worked with uh, the ICE department uh, here locally to try to make a, a better uh, information exchange. I mean, up until you know this news story kind of broke a, a week or so ago, and we were still communicating with them by fax, and uh, that's just an antiquated way of doing business anymore. So we're working on eliminating that, but on the bigger picture, I'm trying to explain uh, to ICE officials in Washington, D.C., that the process is what's broken. It's not the willingness of law enforcement uh, to assist in their operation, it's just the fact that you know we're in two separate lanes. Uh, I-, I can't enforce federal law I'm not a federal agent. I don't intend to be one. Uh, I'm more than happy to help any federal agency to uh, accomplish its mission, but I can't do that for them, and I can't do it at the uh, violation of my constitutional oath.
0: Well, yet some people will say local authorities hold people who are wanted in other states and hold people wanted by other countries via extradition. Why not hold someone for federal immigration authorities? Is is it an issue of whether a judge is involved in, in the situation?
1: It absolutely is, because what you're asking someone to do is uh, essentially hold um, a prisoner based on a form, a form that has no judicial review process and a form that establishes no probable cause. In those cases where we're holding someone from a, on a warrant from out of state or we're holding someone uh, on a probable cause arrest, even from my local jurisdiction, I know that that person is going to be afforded an opportunity of due process in front of a judicial officer. On a, on, in the case of a, an ICE detainer, we know that that doesn't exist. And we know that doesn't exist from court rulings that have happened across the country, as you referenced, most specifically the one in 2014 in Oregon.
0: Steve Reams is sheriff of Weld County in northern Colorado. We talked about his county's cooperation with federal immigration authorities and the challenges to it. Weld recently found itself on a list of counties that the Trump administration says defied federal immigration orders, though Sheriff Reams disputes that. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. As Colorado Neil Gorsuch awaits a vote on his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, Here's a story about another legal pioneer. Jean Dubofsky was the first woman and the youngest person to sit on Colorado's Supreme Court. She went on to successfully argue a landmark civil rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court. That case, dealing with gay rights, was decided 20 years ago. Dubofsky's biography, called Appealing for Justice, was published late last year. CPR host Ryan Warner spoke with Dubofsky and her biographer, Susan Casey. Welcome to both. Thanks,
3: Thanks Ryan. So, Jean, a distinguished list of achievements, as we've heard, but I want to start with an award you won back in 1960, your senior year in high school, what was called a Homemaker Award. Tell us about this.
4: Well, it was the Betty Crocker All-American Homemaker of Tomorrow. It was a national competition. And you had to take a written test. I didn't know much about cooking, but I was pretty good at taking standardized tests. And then a lot of people interviewed you, and each state had a winner. And I was the winner for Kansas, which is where I grew up and went to high school. And then I became— the winner for the United States, which was to me absolutely astounding. There's a picture in the book with me holding my hands with long white gloves on over my mouth, and my eyes are about as big as anyone could imagine. I was so startled.
3: Included in the book are some of the multiple choice questions you had to answer to win this Betty Crocker Homemaker of Tomorrow competition. Susie finds a rat in the attic. What should she do? A. Scream and run. B. Call her husband at work. C. Put the rat in a bag. What was the right answer to that question? Do you remember? No. (laughs) You're having a dinner party and you notice your husband has a spot on his tie. What do you do? A. Point and laugh. B. Quietly let him know. C. Ignore it because you can't do anything about it. What was the right answer there?
4: Well, probably both of them would have been C, wouldn't you think?
3: I'd have to see. Put the rat in the bag. Ignore it because you can't do anything about it. Sue, the reason I bring this up for starters is that this actually helped launch the justice's career. Briefly, how does a homemaker award put her in the right circles?
5: It helped launch a career, but it also um, provides kind of a sense of the journey of women, And what it was like in the 50s and 60s when that was um, a pretty cool thing to do is to take the Betty Crocker uh, test. And that's because that's what women did back then. But it helped launch her career um, in many ways. And I think primarily it exposed her to a world outside of Topeka and made connections for her that lasted a lifetime.
3: What were some of those connections?
5: Well, she went – she was in D.C., For the big to do, the big gala. She was at the White House to meet Mamie Eisenhower. She met Richard Nixon. She had to uh, talk to the members of the press when she won this national award. She met uh, governors and senators, and they were taken with her uh, and wanted uh, to give her opportunities. And those opportunities led her back to the Hill to work for one senator and then eventually to work for Walter Mondale.
3: And she got a scholarship and landed at some pretty prestigious schools.
5: Yeah. Um, the one of the schools, um, very prestigious, uh, wasn't exactly the finest time in her life.
3: Yeah, let's talk about that. So undergrad uh, justice at Stanford, then you went to Harvard for law school, right, in 1964. Yes. And as it's described in the book, it was a a really difficult experience. What, pray tell, was Ladies' Day at Harvard? I, I couldn't believe it when I read this.
4: Well, it was the first class of the first day in law school, a property professor who was the model uh, for the paper chase professor.
3: This is the film and I think the book as well, right? Yes.
4: And he announced that the four women in our section of 125 were not to volunteer, nor would we be called on. And of course, law school is sort of a Socratic method kind of teaching. That,
3: That call and response.
4: And we would not speak until Ladies' Day. Ladies' Day was near the end of the school year. It was the least important uh, topic of the year. And he always chose the same topic for Ladies' Day. So the few women in the class ahead of us handed down the questions so we knew what the answers were. And we sat up in front of the class and that was Ladies' Day.
3: So one day in taking this class is when women in the class could speak up. That's what you're saying. Why didn't you leave?
4: Well, I left that class a lot. There were a lot of days I sat outside and just took notes because I really found it uncomfortable to be in that classroom.
5: You know, that's a good question, though, Ryan, because most of the story that I uh, found about Harvard Law was not from Jean because she said, you know, it was hard, but but from other people like Justice Mary Malarkey, and who also sat her, on the state supreme court. Yes, and I asked her why didn't she leave, as I asked Jean, because it's a it's a question we all. Would think, and what they both said, and others that I interviewed, was, where would we go? That was the best law school in the country, and if it was that way there, um, it was representative of what was going on at the time in the country. Women just weren't perceived of, allowed to be in those uh, top professions,
3: and yet you got your law degree, and. Obviously had a very successful career in the law, as we'll explore. But how would you say, Justice, that that era shaped you?
4: Oh, I think it makes you well aware of how difficult things can be. But most importantly, it taught me that you always have to work harder than anyone else. Because if you're one of a very few women in any given situation, you don't dare make a mistake.
3: Gosh, that sounds exhausting to me.
4: Well, it is in some respects, but you have to be so careful because if you're not prepared to do something and don't do it very well, everyone will remember. And then the women who might come behind you will suffer because, oh, she was a woman who didn't do that very well.
3: A lot of pressure, in other words. Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the story of the first woman on the state Supreme Court who would go on to successfully argue a landmark civil rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court. That's Jean Dubofsky. Uh, Her story is told in the new book Appealing for Justice, One Colorado Lawyer, Four Decades, and the landmark gay rights case Romer v. Evans. Her biographer is Susan Casey, former city councilwoman in Denver. And so, uh, Jean, a few years after you graduated from Harvard, you and your husband Frank, also a lawyer, moved to Boulder, You worked at several agencies specializing in social justice. And one of those jobs took you to the state capitol where you lobbied and worked on legislation and met a gentleman, a Democrat named Dick Lamb, who later became governor. In 1979, he named you to the state Supreme Court. What had changed in the political climate that allowed a woman to be appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court, given how difficult we heard the road was before then?
4: Well, I think... Times were just beginning to change. Sandra Day O'Connor had not yet been appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. I was the 11th woman to serve on any Supreme Court in the country. But Dick Lamb had a wife who was very progressive and very interested in helping women break through into some areas where they'd never been able to serve before.
3: This is Dottie, correct?
4: This is Dottie. And I think it was the beginning of change. Colorado now for a long time has had three women on its Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has three women. I hope we're not stuck at three, but it seems to me that I was lucky and was around at the right time when things really began to change.
3: So you served on the state Supreme Court until 1988, went back into private practice. And in 1990, we get the beginnings of a controversy and what became a landmark lawsuit over gay rights in Colorado. Sue, just briefly, uh, set this up for us.
5: An amendment to the Constitution, um, the state constitution, constitution, uh, was passed in 1992, which was a very, very funny election year, much like today, um, that prevented cities and towns from including uh, sexual orientation to be protected from discrimination and this amendment would stop cities and towns like Denver and Boulder that had ordinances. And um,
3: this is amendment two.
5: there was only one way to stop it once the voters voted for it, and that was to uh, take legal action. And it worked its way through two trials at the local level, two Supreme Court, Colorado Supreme Court trials, and then all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1995. It took three years to get to oral arguments at the court.
3: Jean, in writing about this, Sue describes your role in the amendment to fight as, quoting here, a
4: battle that would challenge uh, her like no other. Why? Well, first of all, if we had lost that lawsuit, it would have diminished equal protection, not just for the GLBT community, but also for all civil rights. And that was a pretty weighty kind of thing to take on. Mm -hmm. And I had never argued or had a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. So that was an additional problem. And finally, like almost all major issues, there were so many different views as to what the right way was to approach the case that I had Lots and lots of help and lots and lots of advice, but lots of contrary opinions. And sometimes they would say, well, if you're going to do that, then you shouldn't handle this case.
3: What was the angle going to be on the legal argument? And and briefly, what did you insist that it be?
4: I insisted that we stay focused on defeating Amendment 2. The national gay rights community wanted to have a case that would resolve all the unresolved issues like gays in the military, overturning – the uh, Bowers versus Hardwick case, which had upheld criminalization of gay sex and uh, gay marriage. And my theory was we couldn't do all of that at once.
3: And indeed, you were successful before the U.S. Supreme Court. Were you nervous during oral arguments?
4: Well, I think you worry about it. But I got my opponent got a first question that told me that I thought we had the fifth vote to go our way. So I relaxed at that point and thought, OK, just don't make any mistakes.
3: And so you see that decision 20 years ago now as pivotal to a lot of cases, a lot of decisions, a lot of issues today.
4: Yes. All of those other issues eventually got resolved on a case-by-case basis.
5: You know, Ryan, if there were no Romer v. Evans, we would not have had Lawrence, we would not have had Windsor, and we would not have um, same-sex marriage today. It started the role uh, for justice for gays and lesbians.
3: What was it like after Amendment 2 passed in Colorado? I just want to give listeners a sense for what the political um, environment was at the time of its
5: passage. It it was chaos. There was anger. There were protests in the streets. People in Colorado could not imagine that they would have voted for something uh, that was so anti, discriminatory. We were not that kind of state. Uh, There was a national boycott launched. We were called the hate state. Uh, The the political leaders were um, in an uproar over what to do to, you know, calm the situation. It was just an awful, awful time and awful in in particular for gays and lesbians who felt threatened again, threatened with violence, threatened, threatened with losing their jobs. It was a terribly tumultuous time.
3: I suppose this is a question for you, Sue, as the biographer, but I'm actually going to put it to Justice Dubofsky. Why do you think your story is important to tell now? I mean, I wonder, having read the book, if you have some sense of the, the place your story occupies today.
4: Well, I think it was a story of how far women have come, probably even more than it was a story of the Amendment 2 case. And I think, in a very sad way... It shows how we can come a long ways and then maybe everything will turn back again. We could lose a lot of the rights that um, women and the GLBT community are now taking for granted. And that, I think, is frightening. I had thought we'd come a long ways with a lot of work and it can all be taken away.
0: That's former State Supreme Court Justice Gene Dubofsky and author Sue Casey speaking with Ryan Warner in November. She's a former Colorado Supreme Court justice and successfully argued a landmark gay rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court decided 20 years ago. Sue Casey is a former Denver City Councilman who wrote Dubofsky's biography, Appealing for Justice. It's up for a Colorado Book Award. Just ahead, the Islamic Center of Fort Collins was vandalized last week. We'll speak with its spokesman about how the community is reacting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The man arrested for vandalizing a mosque in Fort Collins over the weekend has admitted to it. 35-year-old Joseph Scott Jacinto was caught on camera overturning benches, kicking doors and breaking windows with rocks, and a Bible was also found thrown inside. The community has rallied around the Islamic Center of Fort Collins to share their support. Shakir Muhammad is a spokesman for the mosque. Shakir, welcome to Colorado Matters.
6: Thank you for having me on.
0: I I understand that the mess is already cleaned up, but what was your reaction the first time you saw the damage?
6: Um, The reaction was uh, kind of shock, disbelief. Uh, I was happy that no one was hurt at our center. Hmm. Um, But actually, uh, because of international world events and the current tone in the U.S., I actually wasn't surprised that it actually happened, unfortunately to say.
0: What was the price tag? Does insurance cover any of this?
6: Um, Insurance does cover some of it. I know uh, some of our... um, uh, board members were speaking about uh, the cost and they had some estimates. So there's a good amount that will be covered, but there are some additional costs that we will have to pay, I do believe.
0: And of course, that the, the, the anguish of that as well. Uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations says, quote, 2016 was the worst year on record for incidents in which mosques were targets of bias. So far this year, more than 30 mosques have been targeted. Did this news have you on high alert before the vandalism happened?
6: Um, uh, not CARES news, but the actual occurrence that I witnessed or that, that I knew of. Um, in Texas, there was actually a mosque that was burned to the ground. I believe it was uh, at the end of 2016. And uh, I believe at the same time, too, um, there was a mosque in Quebec that was actually a shooter opened fire on the mosque on the early morning prayers. And I believe uh, six people um, lost their lives to that event. So those things uh, did keep me or keep me looking and cautious about our community and safety.
0: How has this affected the congregation? Um, the congregation,
6: uh, they are apprehensive, they're cautious, but they do trust uh, in the people, and the neighbors, uh, residents of Colorado and Fort Collins, that uh, you know people will not uh, do harm to them. And they also uh, feel safe or rely on the uh, local law enforcement and the uh the center staff and uh, board members to um, have measures and have procedures that'll keep them safe as they come to worship and uh, use our center.
0: Now, uh, your mosque is on the southernmost tip of the CSU campus, and it's going to be a straight shot to the new stadium that's being built. Uh, is that concern to you, that maybe you're going to have 40,000 people over the weekends uh, you know, walking right past your, your congregation?
6: Yep, yep. That's a concern on on, a, on several different levels, where we talk about uh, parking issues, or we talk about uh, trash and clean up along the basically the Lake Street corridor, which it'll soon be, and also visibility uh, for people who are not familiar or aware that there are Muslims in Fort Collins, or even they have never even met a Muslim person. Uh, our mosque will be very visible. Even it, even it is now actually CSU uh, demo- purchased and demolished some homes that were just surrounding the mosque, so now there is not that sort. Of Uh, landscape and house cover fronting the mosque. So now it's actually, you can see it from quite far. Um, So, yeah, it's a concern on on several levels, and one of them is the safety issue.
0: Now, the community has rallied around the mosque in a number of ways, and that includes other religious leaders, a rabbi, a pastor. Can you give us a few examples?
6: Yeah, actually, the the first time I heard about the the vandalism uh, was by um, the Rabbi Hilal um, here in Fort Collins at, at the uh, local synagogue, um, I was actually out at lunch with a community member, and I did not perform the morning prayers at the mosque; I performed them at home. Uh, then I went to uh, lunch with a community member, and I had I received the email from the rabbi, and he asked me if our center was vandalized this morning. And I told him I, I you know I wasn't certain, I wasn't sure that. I hadn't heard it. Uh, let me check back with him. Hmm. And the first place I thought I check was Facebook. I thought he might have heard, seen it, seen some posts from there, and that's where I actually saw the, the posting and the pictures. Uh, so yeah, um, that was the first way I've heard about it. And the rabbi with our president, uh, Tawfiq uh, Abu Lail, uh, they actually, actually it was the idea of the rabbi, um, but they decided to have a rally at the mosque for later 5 p.m. that that afternoon and uh, we have been a part of the interfaith council here in Fort Collins we've had a lot of support and actually um, they've requested us on several occasions to be a part of the events not that they wanted us to be, not that they were extended an invite but they wanted us to be included to be involved so we've had a um, always support from hmm. the uh, the faith communities here in Fort Collins.
0: Now, you chose not to share the photo of the suspect on your Facebook page. Instead, you shared a photo of the mosque with a rainbow framing the sky. What led to that decision to not show his face?
6: Yeah, I'm, I'm the manager. I'm the main contributor to the uh, faith, Islamic Center of Fort Collins Facebook page. And I feel that I didn't want to harp in on the individual I'd rather have an optimistic outlook as to what rally, what happened, what transpired thereafter. So the people rallied together, the mosque is even safer than before, um, and therefore had rainbows instead of a picture of the suspect at the time who was accused of doing this event. And perhaps it might be found that he actually did it. But I feel that's more optimistic and the direction of the community rather than focusing on this person, the individual he's caught in the, in the judicial judicial system or take it from
0: there. Yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Shakir Mohammed, a spokesman for the Islamic Center of Fort Collins. It was vandalized last weekend. Uh, We've talked about faith leaders coming uh, to rally around uh, you in support, but what messages have you been getting from the community?
6: Um, Just as open and warm um, support. We've had tons and tons of phone calls, emails, and Facebook messages and, uh, that we haven't been able to keep up with. <laughs> We're actually trying our best. But uh, we've had a lot of support from community members, from people internationally, um, even uh, international uh, media outlets, national media outlets reaching out to us. It's kind of interesting. After the whole event was, uh, I wouldn't say done with, as far as on-site on, on site at the at the center, you know, the vandalism happened. You know, the police came. There's a rally at 5 p.m. Uh, on Sunday. And then Monday, I think you know, most people decided, okay, we're going to go forward with our day with optimism and, and support of each other. And then the media then found out the story, Sunday is probably a slow news day. And then, so sort of recant, recount, uh, you know, you know, backtracking events that happened.
0: So yeah. And this wasn't the first time the community rallied in support of the uh, at the Islamic Center, Fort Collins, after the San Bernardino shooting. People also came out. Tell us about that.
6: Yeah, that is correct. Um you know, during that event or after the San Bernardino uh, terrorist attack, um, I did not want to focus on ourselves, on this community. Obviously, some Muslims felt apprehensive, worried that some people would sort of, you know, retaliate against a local mosque and the four colleges, that Islamic included. Hmm. And actually, the those same faith leaders and communities said, you know, no, you're safe. We know you. And that was a showing of support for us. But also, we didn't want to forget who was actually. Who actually lost their lives and who was really affected in California and San Bernardino? So we actually had a, uh, we actually raised funds to, uh, I think the mayor of San Bernardino to a uh, GoFundMe site that he that he created. We actually do- collected funds and donated to that cause. So yes, we're happy that people uh, rallied around us, said you know we support the Muslims here. They're not r- r- terrorists or anything like that. But we also didn't want to lose sight of who actually was harmed and victims uh, on that day.
0: And you hosted a uh, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself open house. Uh, you've done a few of those, it looks like. What have these events been like? I mean, do you get a lot of outside community involvement? Do you get questions that you know, maybe are, are sometimes uncomfortable to address?
6: And we've had more and more um, outside community involvement. Actually, we had the rabbi um, uh, speak at a session there. Uh, We actually invited, uh, actually, the day before, we actually had a community forum, uh, civic engagement forum, where we actually invited uh, one of the city council women, women, uh, the police chief, and uh, some officials from from CSU. So we're growing to be more of a civic uh, engagement center, I guess you can say, Hmm. rather than just kind of internally working center without much to give or present to the outside community. You know, I think across the U.S., uh, Islamic students are going more and more to realize that uh, they're needed and they're wanted in those avenues, and they have a lot to encourage their members to do or get involved in the center rather than just be a uh, a five-hour-a-week center without much uh, civic engagement or community involvement.
0: Yeah. Your mosque was built only a few years ago, and this is the first time it's been vandalized. But the mosque before this one had been vandalized a few times. Can you, can you tell us about that?
6: Yep. On one occasion, at least, uh, there was... I arrived in Fort Collins in 2000 from New Jersey, and I believe around 2003 or so, there was a vandalism. It only consisted of, of a person, as I'm aware, uh, uh, having a Sharpie and writing on the, on the rear door of the center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know some some words or expletives I think and then in 2005 actually there was a brick thrown through the window there and uh, we initially thought that was a hate crime the group that was in town called racism or in, not in my town uh, they rallied together and, and they were the idea was that it was a hate crime but actually some two years later someone actually um, the perpetrator the person who did this actually Contacted the Islamic Center, and he didn't make himself known for that event. But he said, "I want to meet with you. I have something to talk via email." He sent this, and I met with him at Starbucks. And uh, he told me that he was the one who had uh, who had threw the brick through the center window, and now he's a part of the uh, AA program, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I guess one of the part of the Twelve Steps is that you have to make amends with those you had formerly wronged.
0: So you met with that I person who, who met did with that.
6: Him. Yeah, yeah, and he actually um, he actually felt remorse day or two after, he said when he saw the newspaper, he realized that he was the one who did that. So I guess someone from a party or something like that, you know, he just meandered through the alley, saw a break and threw it through a window, and it turned out to be the Islamic Center for Collins window. So, so he immediately felt remorse, but I guess at that moment, at that time, he, he didn't feel like he would come forward. But it was a few years later when uh, he was actually going through AA that he contacted us.
0: And final question, briefly: do you, do you find it's the the maybe the personal one-on-one interactions that that uh, you find most beneficial, or are the large five hundred, six hundred person gatherings uh, that that take place?
6: Um, I think we have to do both, um, obviously, um, and also we want some dissenting uh, voices. Also, I mean, uh, we haven't had too many at the mosque. There, they, I wouldn't say they were tough questions, but we like to have it a place where people can come and ask questions. Um, but we. You know, I guess it's this and that. I mean, some people just want to be friends of the mosque and come for, and hear voices and meet people and have food, but there are some who actually want to have more dialogue. So we try to make the center a place for both, but uh, I think that one-on-one are the people who really are are not convinced or the ones who really don't believe what's going on. They want to verify with us. So we try to cover uh, both, both of those bases with uh, having uh, the open house or having a you know, open visit by anyone who contacts the Islamic Center saying, say, I want to come talk to you, I want to come uh, observe a prayer, I want to come listen to the sermon. So one-on-one or, uh, or all-inclusive uh, open house, uh, we try to cover both bases.
0: Thanks for joining us.
6: Thank you very much.
0: Shakir Mohammed is spokesman for the Islamic Center Fort Collins. The man who vandalized the mosque over the weekend has admitted to the crime. Up next, the chapel at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs is closing for renovations. We'll take a tour of the modernist landmark with its architect. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¶¶ This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Some cadets entering the Air Force Academy next year may graduate without going inside the campus's most iconic building. It's the Cadet Chapel, built more than 50 years ago. And the Academy announced last week it'll close for up to four years to stop water from leaking inside. The chapel is known for its soaring spires, which may be covered up by scaffolding during the renovation. My colleague Ryan Warner got a tour of the building a few years ago from Duane Boyle, the
3: Academy's architect. Thank you so much, Duane, for meeting us here. It's a pleasure to be here. We're on the choir loft, and uh, above us is the organ, below us are the pews. You know, I've, I've brought so many family members and friends here to show this place off.
2: What do you, what do you feel when you're standing inside this chapel? I think that just like the first uh, trip everybody makes to the chapel, you're always inspired by the, uh, the design of the chapel and the space that it creates inside. And it's just an iconic building that we're very proud of. I've always thought it was the perfect blend of the religious. You've got stained glass. You've, of course, got the
3: pews and the altar and a blend of aviation. You know, With the
2: aluminum, you, you have a, a sense that you're surrounded almost by airplane wings. Do you think that's true? It is. Obviously, uh, the use of aluminum as a major material here at the Air Force Academy, and it would seem... Uh, inappropriate to have built the chapel out of anything else. At one point in time, there was a push to try and use brick on the exterior of the cadet chapel, which would have been very incompatible with everything else uh, in the cadet area itself. The architect
3: uh, was a man named Walter Netch, and he also designed the other buildings at the Academy uh, here in Colorado Springs. Uh, he worked for a rather famous architecture firm, which built some other iconic buildings in this country.
2: Yes, he was a uh, partner with Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, uh, he worked out of their Chicago office, uh, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. At that point in time, was one of the more significant architectural firms in the, in the nation. And certainly today, they're one of the more significant uh, architectural firms internationally.
3: They've designed the John Hancock Center, for example, the Sears Tower in Chicago. The Freedom Tower
2: in uh, New York City, which basically replaces the Twin Towers. And tell us a little bit about Walter Netsch. Walter Netsch was a very, very bold architect. I met him and I spent uh, quite a lot of time with him over several years. Uh, He was very easy to get along with, I thought. Uh, I didn't think he lived up to his reputation of being brash, although I'm sure that uh, he probably could be that way at times. He certainly stood up for what he thought was the right thing to do. If he didn't, we wouldn't have this chapel. Walter was one of the people who carried this design on the road and sold it. I'll
3: note that uh, Walter Netsch died in 2008. Well, this building was not Netsch's first design for the Academy Chapel, was it?
2: No. The fairly serious design of the Cadet Chapel was a folded plate concrete building. Folded plate concrete. Right. Okay. And reactions
3: to this were strong. A senator in 1955 said of the original design, I don't hear the Russell of angels' wings. But Netsch didn't want to design something that looked like a traditional uh, church or chapel, did he?
2: No, he didn't. And I think part of the issue back then uh, was where the world of architecture was at at that point in time. International style modernism was pretty well accepted. But when it came to a a religious structure, there was a lot of interest in how you could actually do a religious structure in a modernist style. Hmm. And uh, I think in today's world, you wouldn't have that same problem. But back then, it was a very new concept.
3: So he went back to the drawing table, Walter Netsch, and uh, I understand studied uh, religious structures in Europe.
2: What were some of the, the edifices that he studied? One was uh, Saint-Chapelle, which was the quality of the light coming into the building. Hmm. Uh, Notre Dame, which was the uh, structure, flying buttresses on the outside of the building, plus sure. the proportion of space. And also the uh, Basilica of San Francisco de Sisi, which was, it is a uh, complex of more than one chapel. And Walter had always questioned whether you could really include more than one chapel in one building and successfully do it. And, and he,
3: he did, in, in fact, with the building we're standing in. You have the large chapel above, and then you've got other religious spaces, for instance, of the, for those of the Jewish faith, the Catholic faith below. So he goes back to the drawing board, and how controversial was the design for this building?
2: This building was controversial uh, not only because of its design, but because of its cost. Okay. I think the configuration, the way the spires are done... uh, the shape of the spires uh, looked like missiles, upended air, aircraft ready to take off, things like that. Of course, that sounds was, perfect
3: to me for an Air Force Academy chapel. It, but. Right. It
2: had a, a military type of a, a look to it, or, or people could perceive it as having a military type of look to it. And that was part of the controversy, that it still didn't have that traditional look of what people thought a chapel should be. And uh, you mentioned, uh, Dwayne Boyle, that um, cost
3: was an issue, and one cost savings has resulted in a rather leaky structure, and we stand here today on a pretty rainy day. Tell us about this this decision.
2: Well, there were budget problems with the chapel. There was a number of uh, things that were done to reduce the cost. Uh, for instance, the chapel originally had 21 spires. It was cut to 19 and then down to 17 because of budget. But that didn't cut the budget enough, and uh, so the uh, Air Force looked at doing different things, and one of those was to eliminate some internal flashings from the design that were meant to carry water out of the structure okay. in favor of using caulking. That did save some money, but the problem is that this building has 32 miles of caulking on it now. 32 miles? 32 miles. And how often does that need to be replaced or updated or filled in? Well, there's a constant program here at the Academy to recaulk a number of spires, it's either every year, maybe every two years, uh, at significant cost, not only for, for the caulking, but to repair the water damage to the inside of the chapel from when it does leak. And currently, where we're standing on the choir loft, we're next to the uh, uh, organ, and we now have water damage in the organ. We're looking down onto the uh, pews, and there's uh, warped wood on the pews, water puddles on the uh, floor, and a lot of wet plaster on the spires. So the, the cost of making that change was significant.
3: It makes me wonder if you've now spent more fixing the leaks than you would have spent, or the government would have spent, on those original uh, designs to make it uh,
2: more waterproof. I suspect that's true. I don't have the figures, but I I suspect we've spent more on caulking projects than what the chapel originally cost altogether. But I have to say, in all fairness, uh, this was a very unique building, and nobody understood at that time what the real impact of removing those internal flashings was going to be. Hmm. Nobody purposely removed them, thinking there was going to be a risk of massive leaks. When I look at, at
3: the, the bones of this building from the inside, I can't help but wonder if it, if it doesn't kind of expand and contract or have some, something of a, I don't know, a life of its own. You know, the, the way that it's assembled makes me feel that it
2: almost has joints. Does that make sense? It does. And then this building is actually a modular building. Oh, really? A very elaborate modular building. The structure of this building is 100 tetrahedrons. And those are all built off-site, brought in on rail cars, and assembled on-site. Huh. So what you see with all the joints are the intersections of where the tetrahedrons are. And the building does move quite significantly. It's not a structural problem. It's not going to cause any safety issues. But it does move extensively. And that's part of the problem with uh, trying to make sealants last for any particular length of time. I see.
3: And, and so on a windy day, do you have some sense of its uh, breathability?
2: <laughs> uh, it pops and crackles on a windy day. Yeah, It's become part of the character of the building, I think.
3: <laughs> right. After a certain point, flaws become character. You know, Duane, I was reading some old articles about the chapel, and I came across an AP story about the dedication ceremony on September 22nd, 1963, And the article said the chapel was supposed to open for the graduation uh, in 1963, in June, at which President Kennedy was principal speaker, but the leaky roof kept the building closed. Do you know that story? I don't. But But it doesn't surprise you. It doesn't surprise me. It's been a problem, uh, apparently, from uh, early on in its history. You know, there was a poll done by the American Institute of Architects to determine the country's 150 favorite works of architecture. And uh, the Cadet Chapel came in at number 51. Uh, What does it say to you that a building so steeped in controversy at the beginning has really become such a treasure?
2: Well, I think it's a tribute to Walter's genius, because the fact that it was controversial isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's much worse if people don't have an opinion about it.
3: Right. Then you haven't really accomplished
2: anything or what you set out to accomplish. So the fact that it was controversial and evoked strong feelings originally, I think, is good. I think the fact that today people accept it as one of the most iconic buildings in the country is good. It, It accomplished what Walter set out to do. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Dwayne Boyle is the Air Force Academy architect. He spoke with Ryan Warner a few years ago when the Academy's cadet chapel turned 50 years old. The leaks in its ceilings that they talked about are causing the chapel to close for up to four years starting next year. Cadets of many faiths, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and other traditions, will be able to attend services elsewhere in campus during that time. that's our show our executive editor is ryan warner our managing producer is rachel esterbrook our producers anthony cotton andrew to michelle p fulcher and stephanie wolf our engineers are matt hers and michael hughes follow us on twitter at colorado matters i'm nathan heffel this is colorado matters from cpr news